Well, good morning, everybody. I have to tell you, I felt some anxiety this morning because I walked in and the the name uh, listed for the sermon is setting the record straight. And I immediately looked to see if my wife would be speaking, but uh, relieved to see that it's me. Uh, you, you may also know that uh, uh, what was the sermon passage listed? Luke six and verses 20 to 26. And those, of course, are the Beatitudes. But that worried me, too, because it said, blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. And then I'm supposed to preach. So just a little bit of fun, uh, uh, because Patrick, of course, was supposed to sleep. Patrick and Kathy uh, know that you are upheld in constant love and prayer and Sarah, too. So we we hope you'll soon be back among us. Um, I want to deal very honestly this morning uh, with something we all struggle with, and that is belief in God in the midst of the pain and the loneliness and the brokenness and the suffering that, that we see and that we experience in this world. You can think of it as the second part of my sermon last week. The truth is that following Jesus and Jesus himself warned us about this is that we must count the cost and take up our cross. What cost is he talking about? Well, it's to let go of sin and die to ourselves and to the things of the world to lose your life as you know it in order to gain your life the way Christ knows it. It's costly. It's so costly. It's more costly than we ever really give credit for. So let's start in prayer. Lord Jesus, would you come and be with us? Grant us your understanding as we struggle to understand your word deeply in our hearts. We want to know you, Lord. We want to be yours, Lord. Open our ears, our minds, our hearts as we study together. Make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, would you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Proverbs 4 and verse 23. And it says this, above all else, above everything else, or you might read in your Bible, with all vigilance. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Profound little set of words. And this verse, of course, won't escape you that it appears in one of the wisdom books that God gave to us. So why does God emphasize this idea of guarding our hearts? Well, listen to what Solomon, said to be the wisest man who ever lived, said. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, the hearts of all people are full of evil and there is madness in the hearts during their lives. And then they die. We will get to the hopeful parts later. (laughs) This is why we guard our heart. Our hearts are inherently full of evil. And so we must guard them. Occasionally, we get a glimpse of our own heart. An example is David. David was so convicted of the sin in his heart that in the 51st Psalm, 
he cries out, oh, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. John Stott put it this way. Do you want to be holy? Then you will suffer. If, and I do mean if here, you want to grow spiritually, it turns out we must suffer brokenness. God leads us into barren wilderness deserts where he redeems our living hells. This desert, as John Ortberg called it, is a blessing disguised as a curse, something we've talked about before. A place where divine epiphanies occur right alongside unimaginable times of despair. And the truth is that our individual journeys, our lives move back and forth between the pain and the despair of the wilderness, the valleys, and the glory and the joy of promised land mountaintops. Why? God leads us through the wilderness to humble us, to test us, to redeem us, and to sanctify us, to cause us to give up our own self-illusions about who and what we are, so that we can become who he meant us to be. That is why Jesus says repeatedly that his way is a narrow way and a costly way. So the title of my message this morning is Broken Hearts But Healed Spirits. And we'll, we will consider three questions this morning related to broken hearts. And to address this issue, I'm going to do, if you'll allow me, a little verbal open heart surgery. Which is dangerous. I'm an internist, not a surgeon. I never see how all the parts fit back in. While we moderns think of the heart as some sort of a warm, pure, sentimental place of truth, Scripture calls it something very different from that and very opposite our understanding that the heart is unsearchable, deceitful above all things, which means that we simply cannot understand or even see the evil in our hearts any more than a fish understands its water that it swims in. It literally cannot see it. And for this reason, the state of our hearts is of great concern to our Creator, and therefore it should be for us. The heart plays a central role in God's plans, as we'll see. And in the Hebrew mind, we need to understand, given the writing, and remember that the Proverbs would have been written in Hebrew, their, their understanding of the heart meant something very different. It meant the whole of a person's inner being, of the interior life and of the inside of our hearts and our minds. The heart, therefore, encompassed the feelings, the mind and the will. And that's how I will use the term heart today. So why does God look at our hearts? Scripture indicates that the heart, that is our mind, feelings and will, is the seat of indwelling sin. The reason, as Matthew says in chapter 15 and verse 18, is that out of the heart comes what? Evil ideas, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, 
theft, false testimony, and slander. These, he says, are the things that defile a person. All of which emanate from the interior of our hearts. So God looks at our hearts because those whom God uses mightily as people are broken before him. That is, those whose hearts have been broken of sin. The first breaking, of course, is in abandoning self and turning to Christ and Christ alone. Solus Christos. Christ alone, as the reformers cried. But our progressive sanctification means that we must be broken of other heart sins, such as pride, self-sufficiency, greed, and other sins. The awful paradox turns out to be that you must be broken to be whole. You must be broken to be whole. These are non-intuitive words for those of us who live in this upside-down Babylon. So this morning we'll talk three questions about the heart. And this is really important because, again, we are instructed in our verse today, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from your heart. And if it is true that everything we do flows from our hearts, we had best Give it center attention in our lives. So the first question is, why does God break us? Why does a loving God break our hearts? And here I think the essence of the answer is simply to take out of us. He breaks our hearts to take out of us. To take out the idols who cannot save the evil and lust that it snares and create in us a need, if you will, a, a vacuum for him and his ways. And through this, prepare us for kingdom work. In Genesis 4, 7, the Lord instructs this. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to devour you. Did you know that the Greek root of the word temptation means the snare that snaps and traps its prey. Indeed, sin is a snare that traps many and binds many in a snare they cannot escape without God. Why did God allow Saul to chase David through the desert for ten years to prepare David as what? A leader after God's own heart. Why did, Paul, why did God give Paul a thorn in his flesh? Paul tells us to humble him, to, to rid him of the sin of pride. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that these troubles that he has experienced through the Lord were to keep me, he said, from becoming conceited. Paul learned that the Lord's grace was indeed sufficient for him and that God's power is made perfect in our what? Our weakness, not our strength, not our self-sufficiency. God breaks us the way a master sculptor breaks or chips away a block of marble in order to create a beautiful work of art. Maybe say it a different way. 
God chips away everything in us that isn't Jesus. And that can be painful because our idols and sin are as hard as diamonds. In Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, we read this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Teach me your statutes, O Lord. It is good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn of your statutes and with my whole heart keep your precepts. So learning comes from afflictions. And then to the heart, learning to keep God's laws. In 1 Peter 5, humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time, He may exalt you after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a promise. That's the why of brokenness. The kind of people God uses mightily are these people described in the 51st Psalm. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. I see no way biblically to get to where God wants us to be without these periods of broken hearts, periods of despair. They have a purpose. So hold on, hold on. After breaking us, God the Holy Spirit can do His work, and He does, of grace, of regeneration, and restoration in us. That's why in Proverbs 3, we're instructed, in all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make our paths straight. Breaking, then submission, then obedience, then straight paths. And then what we all long for, joy and peace. God changes our desires, our wills, and ultimately our eternal destiny. Our second question is, how does God break us? And again, Scripture reveals examples and answers for us. It's not so pretty sometimes. It's often intensely painful. It's characterized by times when you come face to face with the evil in your own heart and other people's hearts and the knowledge that you cannot stand before God with these idols, with these sins. The giants of the faith often referred to this, and we've talked a bit about it before, as the dark night of the soul. Have you had any dark nights? That's God. Seeking to take away something that isn't Jesus in our lives. He does so. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest. In his book, A Cry for Mercy, he put it this way after his own dark nights of intense pain and suffering. He said, to, he said this, is this going to be a period of purification, Lord? Is this going to be the time when you give me insight into the chains that bind me and the courage to throw them off? And he comes to the conclusion, listen to this, is this going to be my chance 
to see my prison and escape it. That's what intense suffering did for him. Consider that the cross stands as a visible reminder to us that love and suffering are two sides of the same coin. Only a fool, someone of willful blindness, is not broken of heart when the reality of Christ's cross is made clear. Do you want to know if God has done this very work in you? Are you really brave this morning? Then, like David in Psalm 139, ask God, search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way and lead me in your way. He'll answer that prayer. He will search your heart and he will lead you, that is, break you to his way. Our third question is, what is our response to brokenness? And we best think wisely and discerningly here. It's all too easy to narcissistically so focus on our own feelings that we simply reject God as unloving or uncaring in the face of his breaking us. That would be to our eternal detriment. And I don't pretend to be able to fully answer in a way that makes complete sense this side of heaven why God allows some of the tragedies that he does. But I do have some understanding that the essence of the answer to the question is so simple and yet mind-numbingly difficult to do. And it's this that I came up with. Our response to his breaking, to his bringing afflictions to us, should be to trust him and to lean on him and him alone to restore us to him. He breaks us in order to restore us. And his restoration, given through grace and his mercy, leads to humility and the strength to give grace to others. You want to, I'm deviating from my script here, but you want to know the best doctor to have? One who's been through what you've been through. Have you ever noticed that? There's a whole different sense of humility and grace in a situation like that. The psalmist instructs us we are to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. So I can't tell you with clarity and you can't explain with absolute clarity why God institutes his plans in our lives the way he does. We know the outcome of that. And as we said, it's a very good plan. You see, our walk with God is always a matter of our heart and not our sight or our own understanding. As a physician, I often counsel people who have lost a loved one and who have turned their pain and suffering into rejection of God. Can I have my book changed? Jerry Sitzer. Jerry Sitzer didn't. In 1991, Jerry Sitzer.
driving his family, which included his mother, his wife, and his daughter, were slammed into by a driver who killed them all in a minute. Jerry, however, is a believer. And in 1998, he wrote this book, A Grace Disguised. Buy this book if you know somebody suffering. If you can't afford this book or it would be burdensome, just come privately and tell me and I will buy you a copy of this book. This is written by a mature believer. His book is soul-wrenching, but at the same time a healing balm for those who have crawled through the valley of despair. Listen to the reality of his loss, and I'm going to take you very quickly through his book. And what I want you to glimpse is the start of the book, which is full of his pain. And as he moves through the book, as he moves through his dark night, you see the light. God shine through and wait till you hear his ending words. To start, he said, I was unable to voice questions or think rationally. I felt wild with fear and agitation from which I could not escape. I could not stop crying, he said. I couldn't Silence the deafening noise of crunching metal, screaming sirens, and wailing children. I could not rid my eyes of the vision of violence, of shattered glass, and shattered bodies. All I wanted, he said, was to die myself. Listen now to this journey. He goes on to say, catastrophic loss wrecks. Destruction like a massive flood. It was unrelenting, unforgiving, uncontrollable, and brutally erosive to my body, mind, and spirit. And then he begins to sense God's presence. He writes, the quickest way I realized for anyone to reach the sun in the light of day is not to run, which way's west? Chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. The tragedy pushed me toward God, even when I didn't want him. And in God, I found grace, even when I was not looking for it. And then he writes, finally, my story is part of a much larger story that I did not choose. I was assigned a role. This is not true for each one of us. I was assigned a role for which I did not audition. I have this sense, he said, that the story God has begun to write, and my prayer is, I wish I could come and touch each of you and look in your eyes individually, that you might you might come to this point. I have this sense that the story God has begun to write, he will finish. And that story will be good. The accident remains now, as it always has been, a horrible experience. 
that did great damage to us and to so many others. It was and will remain a very bad chapter. But, he says, the whole of my life is becoming what appears to be a very good book. Oh, that we would each come to that point. And that's what God wants. My daughter's a mental health and trauma specialist. In her sophomore year in college, five students from her college died when a truck driver fell asleep and hit into their van. Four of her friends died. Initially, two of them were so badly mangled that their identity was unclear. One parent stayed by the bedside of one girl thinking it was their daughter. Can you imagine only to discover six weeks later as their faces healed that it was the daughter of another family who thought their daughter had died? It was the topic of a book entitled Mistaken Identity. But my daughter cast that pain of losing her friends into being a mental health counselor, unafraid to address and travel through the pain-filled deserts with many individuals who deal with traumatic events in their lives. And it's given her eyes and an empathetic heart that have guided her career in ways that would not have happened otherwise. God tenderly gives us this instruction and encouragement. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. David exclaims that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, Henry Nouwen wrote this in his book, Spiritual Journey. I am increasingly convinced, he said, that it is possible to live the wounds of the past, not as a gaping abyss that cannot be fulfilled and therefore keeps threatening us, but as gateways to a new life. Those brothers and sisters are the words of broken men, but broken men restored. Perhaps all of this is why the people who know God best are those broken enough to have to depend on him the most. Consider what the chronicler said in Second Chronicles. I remember this often when I am faced with things I cannot explain because it's a simple verse, but it says so much. We do not know what to do, but our eyes, Lord, are on you. Hold that one tight. We do not know what to do in those times, but our eyes, Lord, are on you. Brokenness alone, you see, usually ends in despair, depression, tragedy. But brokenness under God's direction, under his covering grace and his sovereign plan, leads to growth. 2 Corinthians 1.3 confirms this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, and here's the important part. This is the part we need to keep in mind. Why does he do this? This is the why. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. That's our kingdom work 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Brothers and sisters, we are in a very real sense at war. A spiritual war with an enemy we underestimate who is camouflaged with the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture and our own distracting busyness and our own unbroken and hardened hearts. We are even willing to entertain that ancient question of the serpent. Did God really say? So what are we doing? What are we doing about broken hearts? I want to tell you that I see it happening here in our fellowship. Men and women encouraging one another who get together for Bible study, who create a a healing place and comfort and console one another. I see it powerfully in Rachel's tender ministry to you. I see it in the tear-filled eyes and I hear it in the voices of those who come to us as pastors looking for direction in pain-filled circumstances. So I now know why God breaks us, how he breaks us, and what our response can be. So let me finish with just a few comments. To give you examples from other regular men and women, the first you may remember, some of you, Senator Max Cleland, who lost both of his legs and an arm as a young man serving in Vietnam. He wrote this, I had not always believed that strength could come from brokenness or that the thread of a divine purpose could be seen in tragedy. But now I do. Now I do. And one echoing to us from ancient Greece, which I read to you last week from Aeschylus, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the grace of God. I know that some of you, even today, may be in that valley. (laughs) I'm sorry. I have a tenderer heart (laughs) than I sometimes think about and I know that's true for Pastor John too some of you may not even be able to express your feelings and pain but I want you to know you are not alone hold fast brother and sister I want you to know that you do not go through that valley alone you have a holy hand that holds you a Spirit that will sustain you and a Christ who will literally carry you. Hold fast because he who saves is coming. The day is near when in a twinkling of an eye, I am will suddenly be right there in front of you. And he will thrust out his hand to grab you even as you think you're falling deeper into the abyss. And he will pull you into him and you're going to hear those gentle words. No more tears. 
It's over. It's over now. And he who has watched over you since before time, he himself will wipe every single tear from your eyes. And you will be free at last. Free at last. God Almighty will rescue each of us. And we will be free at last. Hear and know, brother, sister, this verse from Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Lord God, our rescuer, our savior, our deliverer, come quickly, Lord. Some of your children are suffering, Lord. Do what you did for Joseph. What others meant for evil, you used for good. Lord, heal us. Be the balm of Gilead that heals our wounds and even our broken hearts. Shelter us in the cleft of the rock of ages and protect us from those who would harm us. Not so that we live lives free of pain or discomfort, Lord, but so we would sacrifice our comfort to rescue those around us. Lord, would you allow us to be your agents of healing and of mercy. Reach down to us, Lord, and catch us lest we fall into the abyss. And soon, Lord, soon, we beseech, let us see you so that you can wipe away our tears, that we may fellowship with you and one another forever and ever and ever. Amen.